might be considered risky or going back to the roller coaster uh, example, like how many times have you said like, oh, is it scary? No, it's not scary. Then you get in there and be like, man, are you crazy? Like that, that was absolutely terrifying. Like, why didn't you tell me? He's like, I did. Risk is relative, right? And so like there's always going to be and you should always kind of reserve some room for that, because when you can talk to someone, best advice ever, but they may call it risky and you may say that was particularly normal. They may call something spicy and you'd be like, there was no spice in that thing at all. So it's relative, right? But of course, you always want to make sure that you're just building up this discernment muscle, like making sure that whatever someone says, that you're not weighing the advice of a cousin or even a well-meaning parent with that of an expert. You can take all of that advice and use it to factor in uh, your decision, but you you know, probably should not be weighing those the same. Yeah, especially... to the Rich and Regular Podcast, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Julian. And I'm Kirsten. And today we're talking about overconfidence in investing, aka right. the confidence trap. Did you make that up? Which part? The confidence trap. I kind of did. Okay. I thought it was a thing, but then I realized it's, it's not the thing that I was thinking. Oh, okay. <laughs> but before we dive into my made up thing, I want to shout out Hannah Shad, who left us a five-star review that said, finally, nuanced money combos. I've been a longtime fire follower. What Kirsten and Julian do better than most anyone is talk holistically about money, money as a part of your actual life. Most money gurus talk about money in a vacuum, but not these guys. They want to get into the mess and discuss how changes you make to your money impacts your relationship, your identity, your felt sense of purpose in life. Love this couple and this podcast. I feel like we about to pay her to say this. This sounds like an ad. <laughs> anyway, I really appreciate it, Hannah. I do appreciate it, Hannah, especially the part about getting into the mess. Yes, I need yes. to my media kit. Yes, I do <laughs> like to get into some mess. <laughs> Speaking of, typically when people talk about confidence, they're talking about wanting more of it. It's like one of those noble traits that when you don't have it, you always feel a little left out. You always feel like there are certain things that you can't achieve the same way or even on the same timeline as other people. Yeah. But today's episode kind of flips that on its head because we're talking about overconfidence and how to keep your confidence in check, which is definitely a switch up. I don't hear that talked about too much in the finance world. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So I wanted to talk about this for a variety of reasons. I think partially because confidence has just been top of mind in my own kind of introspection and in having so many conversations with others over the last couple of months around like where they are in terms of their goals. And we're all kind of encouraging each other to kind of tap back into that moment of confidence because we all feel like we are at our best when we're doing it. But confidence is one of those things that is so deeply subjective, yeah. you know, like one person's confidence is another person's arrogance. Some mm -hmm. people think overconfidence is the only way to go. And some people, when they hear overconfidence, all they hear is risk. Yeah. So it's a really interesting thing that I think everyone can kind of define on their own. And obviously there are some financial and certainly investing implications to it. And so we wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think it certainly plays more of a role in terms of how people invest, how frequently, what their risk tolerance is. Uh, I, I think it plays more of a role than I think a lot of us are giving credit for. Yeah. And there needs to be a counter message to balance all of this 
delusional talk. So that's <laughs> okay. like the new thing, which is like, get delusional about your life. Yeah. Like be a little delulu. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. And there isn't about some things. When it comes to investing, there is a point where you get diminishing returns from being a little delulu. Yeah. So I think we should talk about it. But to your point about what people call confidence, I think when I think about overconfidence, I think about ego, like egotistical, not the ego as in the real love okay. I thought self. we were going to get deep. <laughs> I know. And I could. Y'all know I could go there, but I'm not going to. I'm talking about egotistical. And I think there's a lot of ego when it comes to what people think of when they think of a good or a savvy investor. Part of it comes from sort of this theme that we've been tapping on the last couple of episodes, which is this deep desire to be above average, to yeah. be better than the majority of people. I think some of the ego comes from that, but a lot of it also comes from media and Hollywood and the way that investors, especially successful investors, are portrayed as these larger than life types of personalities. Yeah. You have to be this outsized personality in order to get these outsized rewards. But the reality is being a good investor really just boils down to your relationship with risk and uncertainty. Yeah. And I think once you understand that, once you truly understand how investing works, whether it's a personal investment or a financial one, you also start to understand the role that you play in your investing story and how that's somewhat limited by the construct of market returns. You're yeah. dependent on a market. And I think just larger than that, or more importantly, the whole point of investing is to put your money to work. And so if you have this deep-seated belief that you can work harder than your money because that's what's been ingrained in you, or that all the good things in your life come directly from your, your work ethic, you're super confident in your work ethic, yeah. what you start to do is over-efforting. You start making things harder in this pursuit to prove to yourself that you're a hard worker. It reminds me of those people who clean their house before the housekeeper comes. <laughs> like yes. you're just adding additional layers and it's a way that you get in your own way. I was just about to say it is probably one of the greatest or purest ways of people getting in their own way or just being duplicative or counterproductive. I haven't used a culinary reference in a while. And as you were talking, I was thinking about cooking a turkey. And if overconfident uh, turkey makers, if you've never. Yeah. So these are the people who, you know, like you're overconfident, but you you, you end up messing up like some simple thing or overlooking some simple thing yeah. or um, it ends up a little too salty because you wanted to do all the things from brining it and injecting it into all this stuff. But you forgot that you didn't quite thaw it correctly or <laughs> then you decided that you were going to fry it and then you so it on fire. It feels like it's directed towards me. I'm an overconfident cook. You are an overconfident I'm trying to do the most. Yeah, it's like if we, I just want a dinner. And it was like, no, well, I saw this thing. And it was like a miso blade. It's like, how would you start there? Like if you don't cook off. I think we try like to miso glaze instead of just salt. air fryer, like salt, pepper, air fryer. This is why they have the air fryer, <laughs> right? But you wanted to skip past that <laughs> and move towards fine dining. But I think from a financial standpoint, I think a lot of it boils down to what you said. And it is very American of us, right? To always want to shoot and strive to be the best and if you think about some of the earliest lessons that every single one of us has taught is like hard work is mm -hmm. such a virtue. And so much of every reward that you could ever imagine starts and ends with this idea of hard work. Mm -hmm. And again, that can work against you when it comes to being an investor. And I think that's why you find so many people fiddling and 
being very overconfident, going back to the turkey example, and wanting to do all the things and constantly looking for the next big thing. And it's like, you didn't have to, you have everything you need right here, but no, they got to, you know, they want to know what's next, what's bigger. But I think there's also something to work in a different way that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to. And maybe it's just me. I, I don't think that's the case, but I do think that, especially when you are highly compensated for your output and understanding of a particular field of study, that oftentimes tends to shape your investing perspective as well. You consider yourself an expert in this field. As a result, you feel like you have some type of advantage in your ability to understand this particular industry. And as a result, you're a little bit more willing to invest in those kinds of things. I certainly see that with a lot of tech workers, people who work in tech, tend to be far more bullish on tech because every single day they're told that they're working on some game-changing, life-changing society once in a generation thing. And as a result, they tend to be a bit aggressive and much more willing to invest in that. But I'm also not immune to that. I certainly remember, and I did a little bit of homework here, we've spoken about this before, but we spent a considerable part of our careers working in the hospitality industry. And I remember in the early 2010s, right around when we met, this was like the dawn of what they would call online travel agencies, right? So the Expedia's of the world, Kayaks, Hotels.com, et cetera. These companies were changing the game. Like they were coming in as tech companies. They were growing at ridiculous rates. And if you were in the industry at that time, of course that would have shaped your perspective on whether or not you would buy that stock. So I did some research and I was like, well, what if we had decided to follow that perspective? If we decided to invest in Expedia, Back then, so 2012, when we met, Expedia's share price was $21 per share, and now it's at $158, which is down from a high of $190. So it's performed really, really well. Do you remember when Booking.com came Mm -hmm. about? Mm -hmm. And we thought, that sounds weird. It's not even a cool website, but we saw the data and was like, how is this like the biggest website in Europe? And we've never even heard of it. Long story short, that stock price back then would have been around $525, and now it's at 3,771. Wow. So a couple of things here around overconfidence. One, we clearly were not that because if we were, we would have invested in that. I would likely have had a good bit of regret. <laughs> I am kind of have a tinge of it right now, but I also know enough to know that for every Expedia at every booking.com and every Chipotle, there is a Shake Shack. There is a WeWork. There is a Zoom. There is an Under Armour who I remember at one time was supposed to dethrone Nike, right? Mm-hmm. And so overconfidence, I think, comes not just from your own beliefs. I think it's reinforced sometimes by what you do for a living and your level of understanding of a particular business or an industry, etc. And I think it's just one of those things that a lot of people really, really need to pay attention to and make sure that they're not overcomplicating their investing approach and not letting some of these external stimuli get in the way. Yeah, especially if you get a little winning streak, because what it leads For to sure. is that now you're excessively risk taking. For sure. One or two risks. Sure. Like you should be happy. But you own NVIDIA. You certainly feel oh, like man. you found a diamond in the rough and you yeah. could probably do it again. Yeah. I have right? a friend who owns some early NVIDIA stock and they have people who own NVIDIA <laughs> stock tell you that they own NVIDIA stock. Oh, man. They know for a fact Ballin'. they feel like they are one of the few people that found this diamond in the rough and they've got a unique crystal ball, right? But yeah. but again, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm not knocking you. I'm not throwing shade. I just hope that we're not 
letting the bias get in the way of our overall risk profile. And exactly. I think that's the thing that really, really gets people caught up. So let's talk about risk for a little bit, because you can't talk about investing without talking about risk. You shouldn't talk about you shouldn't without talking about risk, risk. is unavoidable. There's always going to be some level of risk. It's a natural part of investing. And if someone tells you otherwise, if someone promise you a risk free investment, that's a red flag. That's a red flag. Dead giveaway. <laughs> While risk in general is unavoidable, excessive risk is completely avoidable. The key to avoiding excessive risk is to understand and get familiar with how it's measured, identify your own personal risk tolerance, and then manage the risk without trying to eliminate it altogether. There's a lot of noise around risk tolerance, and I think it's because people conflate your risk tolerance and your investment strategy with your personality. And so yes. if you are risk averse or if you're high risk, depending on where you're from and what your culture suggests, those are good things. But we act like those are the only two options. Yeah. And there's not. There's this middle ground of just being risk aware and making decisions based off of the information that you have. Yeah. My dad has this antidote that says, um, he didn't make it up. Let me not act like he made it up. But he was the first person who told me it. But he said bears get money, which is conservative people. Bulls get money, which are the high risk people. Pigs get slaughtered. Get slaughtered. He yeah, he made that up. up. No. <laughs> he might have made up um, if you're going to eat. If you're going to eat shit, shit don't, don't nibble. It's <laughs> another one. Yeah, he might have made that one. But he certainly didn't make up that one. But no, yes. Yes. Pigs against slaughter is meant to to highlight greed, yeah. right? Pigs are known to be greedy, which is kind of unfair that they get cast as the greedy ones. But don't be greedy. You can be conservative. You can be risky. You can be somewhere in the middle. Just don't get greedy. And I think that's what happens when you get that first little win. You're like, oh, man, it's another one in there for me. I'm so smart. Yeah. I can probably do it again. Yeah. So much of this really boils down to probability versus possibility. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, we always use the example of jumping out of an airplane, right? Some people might think of jumping out of an airplane, obviously skydiving. I shouldn't just say jumping out of an airplane, but skydiving. Some people would say, absolutely not. I would never do it. I've done it. And it was an amazing experience. But most people just see that and very similar to what I said at the top of this episode. All they see is the risk. They can't imagine that there's anything to be enjoyed from that experience, even though there's a 99.99% chance that your parachute will open. Right. right. And again, you don't hear in the news that man or woman land safely after using a parachute. Right. You hear that somebody passed away. And even yeah. that doesn't actually happen that frequently. Similar to plane crashes, right? You don't hear that thousands of planes landed today. Yeah, you just hear about now, that one where the wheel the came wind? off. Yeah, you hear that and all of a sudden it's like, you know what, cancel our chip, maybe we right. should do a road trip. What's going on with Boeing? Yeah, yeah. And it's similar to stock investing, right? Like you hear about the big booms, you hear about the big busts, but everything in between just kind of sounds like the weather. Yeah. You know, like it's not really worth uh, paying attention to. But there are ways and things that I think we should be doing as investors to help us understand the actual probability. That was a real statistic, by the way, when it comes to parachutes. There's a 99.99% chance it's going to land. I looked it up to make sure that I didn't misquote here. And there are at least two, and they might be the same number. With respect to losing your life in a plane crash, the odds are one in 800 million. So 0. 0.0002. But then the question becomes from an investing perspective, what is the likelihood that you can have that wonderful story to tell? And there's data on that. What is the likelihood that you can pick that stock? And basically, it's it's a little higher, actually. It's around 20 
percent. Right. So like one in five chance for every one stock that works for you. Going back to the example that I said before, statistically, there might be four that don't, which means that actually, depending on how you spread your money across that portfolio, much of what you lost in the four might have been gained by that one which ultimately leads you back to saying, well, why did I do this to begin with? Right. And so it's an interesting thing, but I just want to make sure that people who are out there are kind of thinking about that and then factoring that into how they ultimately design their portfolios. I think when you talk about probability and possibility, it's about making calculated risks. I don't think people have a lot of experience calculating risks. I don't think we know how to do it. Because there's no standard measurement for risks in real life. It's even all, the, all left up to interpretation. Yeah. I mean, even the risk that you talk about in terms of the 0.0002%, that's very hard to wrap your head around. Just like the difference between 1 million and 1 billion. Yeah. Our brains are not calculators. That's why we use calculators because they don't do that kind of math really easily. And we tend to only talk about risks in these extreme ways. Like there's this cultural impact of phrases like scared money don't make money, no guts, no glory, high risk, high reward. I mean, those are really fun and cute to say. And then on the other side, there's the psychological impact of the other extreme, which is that there are these cautionary tales of people who lost it all, right? Like you said, the news doesn't celebrate the 10 and 20% gains. It's only going to tell you the stories of people who had 100x returns like the world of venture capital or who lost it all because they made a silly mistake or they lied or they you know something happened yeah and so because of those two things we don't know how to calculate risk nor do we know how to give language to calculated risks and we're all just looking for these one size fits all solutions which is not productive. It doesn't exist. And I think what that also does is it enables us to take our risk profile in one part of our life and just assume that this is our default level of risk and yes. then they apply it to their investing lives, right? Yes. So like if I'm a race car driver, just assuming these are, even that, me just referring to a race car driver, I'm naturally assuming that people who drive race cars are people who embrace risk. While I'm willing to bet that they can offer tons of data and insights to say, well, actually, it's this driving is your car. deeply <laughs> protected by steel and yeah. all of these things, like to the point where I can be driving 400 miles per hour crash and there's really a low likelihood that I lose my life. So yeah. it's not risky or nearly as risky as you think it is. But again, because I know nothing about race car driving, I'm making these kinds of assumptions. And I think that's what people do with investing. And so I think there are a couple of things. Um, there are two indicators in particular that I want to talk about that I just don't oftentimes hear enough about. When people are talking about investing, they're always looking at the earning potential. They're looking at the potential for stock growth and how much they may make. But I don't hear anything or nearly as much about how risky that particular approach might be. And thankfully, because there's droves of data in the financial world, they do have indicators and they do this math for us. And we should be looking at these things. And that's part of the reason why we're talking about it. Yeah, I think that's a huge insight. Risk is measured in the financial it, it world. It's completely measured. If you can't access the risk of your investment, then maybe yeah. it's not a viable investment for you. Yeah. So I know most people just look at the stock price, but if you're on Yahoo Finance or Google Finance or any other financial website, you're likely going to see a table of other indicators that you should be looking at and using the factor in, assuming you want to make these kinds of investments, whether it's a mutual fund or an individual stock. There are two that I think people should be paying attention to, and there are more, but there are just two that we're going to talk about. One is beta 
And anytime I hear the word beta, I, I just tell people to think bumpy because that's like what beta is going to be. Beta is going to tell you how bumpy of a ride you can expect if you choose to invest in this particular investment. And very similar to, let's say, an index fund uh, where the goal is to track the index or in the case of a total stock market index fund, we're going to track the total stock market. The beta of a fund is going to be relative to that particular index, whatever it is. So if we're talking about the S&P 500 and we're looking at the beta of a stock or a fund, it's going to be relative to the S&P. So if the S&P 500 is just going to use algebra here, X levels of bumpy, that's the baseline. That's mm -hmm. one. And this fund is going to be a beta of, let's say, 1.24. Then you can assume that that fund is going to be around 24% bumpier relative to the S&P 500. So if the S&P 500 is up 10%, then you can assume this fund or this stock is going to be up at a multiple of around 24% higher than that. Same thing works vice versa. If the S&P is down 10%, you can expect that that fund might be down about 24% more than the S&P 500. So that's yeah. beta. The other one is R squared. And it's similar because it it, it is a matter of looking at uh, the performance of a fund or a stock relative to something else. And so sticking with that example, uh, using the S&P 500 as an index, the R squared of a fund is going to let you know what is actually driving that bumpiness, right? What proportion of the bumpiness in that particular fund is coming from whatever it is benchmarked against. And so if the R squared is 0.9, then you can assume that 90% of the volatility that that fund is experiencing is being driven from its actual benchmark. And that can kind of help you design your portfolio to say, well, I don't need to be overexposed in these particular areas. You might look at the fund and like uh, the future potential earnings. You might like the price point. But if you're looking at that R squared and you're saying, well, I, I'm already exposed in other parts of my portfolio in this particular area, then maybe I should look for an alternative, something that's driven by something else. If that's what you want, you might be fine with that. But it's something that people should be looking at, because when you do have the whether it's these increases or decreases in your portfolio, you want to have some kind of understanding of where that's coming from. And that's that's especially true, I think, for a decrease, because you don't want to overreact to something and make all of these big changes or sudden changes to your portfolio without truly understanding a little bit more about what might actually be driving the declines that you're experiencing. You know, I oftentimes think about it like like a roller coaster, you know, like when you go to a theme park and you can. I know I've seen it a couple of times, but you go to a theme park and you see like an indicator of how wild and crazy that particular <laughs> ride is. Um, like whoever comes up with that, like God bless them. But the, those are people who are basically using these indicators and say, listen, this is how crazy you are. Like if you're willing to get on this, you've got to be level four crazy. <laughs> and it's the same thing I think that happens with these stocks. But most people don't look at that. They're just looking at. They're looking up, they're looking yeah. at the twists and the turns and they're listening to the screens and they're either scared to death of that or they're saying, that's what I want. I'm willing to get in line for it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think beta and R squared are great for the quant nerds, the people who like numbers and the people who like to base their decisions in data and numbers. But there are people who value that qualitative experiential feeling 
And I think when it comes to investing, that's part of the reason why they underperform. I think overconfident investors have way too much fun when it comes to investing. Investing is one of those things that doesn't have to be fun. There are literally thousands, dare I say millions of other ways to have fun. And the people who insist on making investing fun lose. It's not It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be slow and boring. And that's not to say that it can't have a sexy user interface or that it can't be in a mobile app or that it can't be convenient and easy. Some of the other things that we associate with positive feelings, but fun, fun is, I, you know, fun feels like a reach. Look, I, I, I actually had some fun investing this week, right? Like there was some money that kicked off of our brokerage account that I reinvested. And it was a fun experience, like kind of thinking about what I wanted to invest in. I know what you're referring to. I don't know that I would go so far as to say that fun is a bad thing. I know what you mean. I do think that fun can be a distraction. It's a slippery slope. It, it's a, it can be a slippery slope. And it's a slippery slope between investing and gambling. I'll give an example yeah. because I don't want to make it seem like I'm anti-fun. Yeah, Lord yeah. knows. You already did that. <laughs> You've already Lord successfully. Knows. I love fun. I but can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> but meme stocks are a great example. Yeah. And if you're unfamiliar with meme stocks, they're like digital casinos. There are these companies that get listed in forums, whether it's on Reddit or in you know private Discord communities. And the value of these companies gets determined by their popularity online and in these groups. It has nothing to do with the real life financial performance of the company. Yeah. It's all hype, very little substance. So we've seen this with AMC. We've seen it with a lot of stocks. GameStop. GameStop. Yeah, it just happens online. And that's what makes it the slippery slope because there's no underlying structure or strategy to this bet. It's just a gamble. And so I wanted to take some time to call out some key traits and some key differentiators between investing and gambling, because okay. I think it's important that we differentiate the two. Investing has some risk, as we said, like there is going to be some level of risk. And depending on the asset, you get to pick what level you're comfortable with gambling it's just risky. It's just risky in general. There's not levels of risks. There's different odds, but it's all risky. Okay. Investing has fairly predictable outcomes. Those outcomes are predictable because they're based on hundreds of years of publicly available data, data that is regulated by different institutions and regulatory committees. There are rules. It's all there that you can access before you make your decision. Gambling questionable. Like you have no idea how other people fared. You have no idea what the house is holding. Yeah. You have no idea what's happened in the past because all that matters is that one play that you're making right now. The other thing that investing has is your ability to buy stable asset classes. With gambling, the asset is questionable to begin with. Like what what exactly is the asset here? There's there's some, it's nothing burger. It's just, you're just putting money on something. With investing, you can diversify to improve your odds. With gambling, it's YOLO. You cannot diversify. You can just keep playing. You can double or nothing, but the odds are the odds. There's no way to to tweak it unless you're a real pro. Like, well, I'll, I'll do the disclaimer for people who know how to count cards or whatever, whatever trick that they have. Yeah. And then last but not least, with investing, there is the magic of compounding interest and incremental gains over time versus gambling, where, again, it's double or nothing. You put it all yeah. in or you take it all out. 
And so those are some key differences that you have to ask yourself when you're thinking about some of the things that you see online or thinking about some of the things that other people are overconfident in. They might just really be gamblers. They might just really enjoy that feeling. I had a similar thought uh, a few months ago. I remember having the conversation with you around what the difference is between an investor and an informed gambler. Yeah. And I I think so much of it, you know, it it just goes to prove that these things, uh, these ideas kind of exist on a spectrum, right? Because there are some gamblers who are professional gamblers and earn a consistent income. Now, granted, I don't know much about them, but I know they exist. And to your point, they count cards or you might have a particular level of understanding of the sport and inside information, like all of those things. But there are bodies that exist, you know, like like a casino doesn't necessarily exist. Like maybe you say like the, the, with gambling, the casino exists as a governing body, but then you've got the Fed. You can get into those kinds of details. Yeah, but the house I, always wins. The house, is, it's designed for the house to yeah. always win, whereas with the Fed is designed for shareholders to win. So it's a fundamentally different relationship. But yeah, there's something to it, but I'm glad you kind of highlighted what some of the core differences are because I know we certainly get that pushback quite a bit from people, especially if they just did win a lot of money betting on the game or, you know, my entire trip to Vegas was paid for 10 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, I get it. <laughs> By an altcoin. By an or... altcoin, yeah. yeah. So speaking of altcoin, right, because this is something that um, I also looked up and I think this is part of the reason why people find themselves uh, kind of traveling the road of confidence and kind of going a little bit too far to the point where they end up in the gambling side of things. Speaking of altcoins, um, I'm going to go back to the 2010s again. I feel like I'm dating myself for maybe the second or third time in this episode. But do you know what the number one best investment you could have made? All asset classes, what the number one best investment you could have made in the 2010s were? I'm going to guess Bitcoin. Correct. It's Bitcoin. (laughs) Yeah. And so you've got cryptocurrency promoters sort of dangling that over your head and then taking everything that you just said around um, investing and gambling and saying, call me what you want. But I made the right decision one time in 2010. Correct. And I expect you to make it again in 2023 because I benefit. Correct. Correct. (laughs) And so this is part of the challenge. And I think part of what so many people kind of struggle with because they, they, they do convince themselves that, yes, I do understand risk. Yes, I do understand that there may be consequences to being overconfident, but I just need one. I just need that one little hit. It's that little, I just need to hit it one time and not even the big jackpot. I just need it to happen one time and all of the losses will be washed away and everything will be made right in the world. There's a little bit of data that we pulled up. This is from a CNBC crypto study uh, on investing and it showed that 80% of investors globally have lost money investing in crypto and the median amount loss was around 36% of their account. This is according to eToro. There's another study, and we quoted this in our investing class, Making Money Grow. There were a couple of studies that we quoted. It was around options trading, and it basically showed that it was statistically impossible for people to do this well over a certain period of time. They tested it in, I believe, Taiwan. They tested it in Brazil, and they tested it in our and they tested it at the University of California. And so, at different stages over the last five years, I believe it was, they looked at different pods of active options traders and they were all 
finding similar results. And even the people who did well found marginal improvement relative to what they would have gotten if they just invested Mm -hmm. the traditional way. So again, not to discredit options trading, it's not to discredit cryptocurrency, but it's to help people understand the probability of having a favorable outcome and then using that probability and the risk to kind of taper down and right size their confidence levels about whatever it is that they're doing and using that to design a portfolio, sort of place a cap on what they're willing to risk so that they don't end up on the losing end of a gamble. Yes. Yeah. There is a professional gambler who I love, Annie Duke, who writes books about how to make better decisions when you don't have full visibility to the other side. Hmm. And so if you're interested in learning how gamblers think in a really informed way, and some of the tips that we're about to give are tips that I'm sure she would echo because they're, they're just, they just make sense. Yeah. Like, so uh, check out Annie Duke and her work and maybe someday she'll come on the podcast. Oh, I think that sounds like a good idea. Okay, let's roll through some of these tips. Um, this is a little bit of a recap. So one is to make sure that you always have something to compare that investment to. And so in the case of the stock market, you always want to ask relative to what? So this is risky. Great. Relative to what? Is this risky relative to a bond investment? Is this risky relative to the S&P 500? That should really be your baseline. And I think that also going back to beta and R squared gives you an idea of what that investing journey might look like. So you're not investing because you heard that something is going to triple in value over 10 years and freaking out when the ride gets a little bumpy in year three, right? So you really want to get an idea of what that is. I think the other thing that um, does not get spoken about enough, and you mentioned this idea of having a qualitative indicator, but I think just talking to seasoned investors, talk to people who are older than you that can tell you about what might have represented Expedia in their day or Booking.com in their day, like get a better idea of what those full journeys look like. Because I think a lot of people want that story to tell. And that's a part of the investing experience is like everyone wants the ability to be able to say, I bought this stock or this fund at this time. But we don't talk to enough people around what the full breadth of that experience might have been like, because it wasn't all great the entire time. There were periods if you owned Apple stock where you kind of felt like, oh, my God this company is going to shit the bad time and time again, but they didn't. And now here we are 30 years later and everyone's saying, oh, this is a no brainer, mm-hmm. but you would have had plenty of reasons to not buy or to sell Apple stock or Meta stock or Amazon stock just over the last 10 to 15 years. And so yeah. talking to people who've kind of lived that experience in their own generation, I think gives people a little bit more perspective so that they're not overreacting or afraid to jump in if that opportunity presents itself. And they can also give you the perspective of when a company has kind of hit its max. It's a reliable right. stock. It's a legacy stock and it delivers great dividends. But if you're expecting returns from it, there's a point where all companies aren't really growing anymore. They're just kind of the they're just kind of coasting. Mm-hmm. And knowing where a stock is in that life cycle is a really important thing that you can learn from a seasoned investor. Yeah. My tip is to increase your exposure to data points. So like you said, knowing what risk is compared to something else, the same is true for the reward, for the outcome. To know that you can make 300% in crypto or you can make 300% in the stock market, it might take a little longer. But knowing that the option to make 300% is available in both is a really important tool because then you can understand, all right, what are the other things beyond just 
the result that I can compare it to. The other part of looking at more data points is that you become more informed and you get used to seeing patterns and you can understand if something is a pattern or if it's just a one-time thing. Like you said, typically companies will go up and down. It's completely normal to have variable performance depending on the quarters. And because in the U.S. we report out quarterly, yep. you don't want to get spooked. You want to know that there's a low season, that things happen, and that companies eventually scramble and hopefully can, can bounce back. And then the last thing I'll say about exposure to data points is there's this term called anecdata. And it goes back to what you were saying about talking to investors that are older than you or more seasoned than you, more experienced than you. Anecdata is anecdotal data that is based on personal observation or opinion. So it's just another way of seeking out beyond just the quantitative numbers, hard and fast data. It's really talking to people about their personal experience and, and being introspective about your own personal experience yeah. to add that as a data point that you are exposing yourself to and considering as you're thinking about these investments. Yeah. Next tip, uh, recognizing that risk is relative, right? Yes. You could argue the same is true for reward or being rich, any of those things. It's relative. And I think that's something that people know, but they don't actually factor into those moments where they're like really at this point of consideration because all they can really care about is what's happening in that particular moment. But what might be considered risky or going back to the roller coaster uh, example, like how many times have you said like, oh, is it scary? No, it's not scary. Then you get in there like, man, are you crazy? Like that, that was absolutely terrifying. Like, why didn't you tell me? He's like, I did. Risk <laughs> is relative, right? And so like there's always going to be and you should always kind of reserve some room for that because when you can talk to someone, best advice ever. But they may call it risky and you may say that was particularly normal. They may call something spicy and you'd be like, there was no spice in that thing at all. So it's relative, right? But of course, you always want to make sure that you're just building up this discernment muscle, like making sure that whatever someone says, that you're not weighing the advice of a cousin or even a well-meaning parent with that of an expert. You can take all of that advice and use it to factor in uh, your decision, but you, you know, probably should not be weighing those the same. Yeah, especially with people who are seasoned investors. I, I, I speak for myself and others where if they have $10,000 on a short or a put or an options trade, they're probably paying with $10,000 of returns. Yeah. If you are pulling $10,000 from your savings account to make the same play, the risk is different for both of y'all. It's the same amount of money, but the risk for them losing the house's money is very different than the risk for you losing your savings Correct. or the your emergency fund. The odds, the are, odds the are the same, but the what, risk is not. That's what throws people off, right? It's yeah. like, well, the odds are the same. The likelihood of it is the same. The underlying fundamentals of the asset and its likelihood to produce this outcome is the same. But the risk for me because of what I do to earn money or because of my personal situation is completely different than it may be for you. I'm certainly at a point now where, and I remember saying this over dinner the other day, you know how they say, if you're not married, then you shouldn't be giving me marriage advice. Yeah. <laughs> or if you don't have kids and you shouldn't be uh, giving me parenting advice. Or for us, it's like, man, you only got one kid. You only got three kids, <laughs> no. two kids. I'm <laughs> at a point I'm talking you, to people with multiple kids because they're like, but you just got one. They're it's right. Like, That's fair. They're absolutely right. <laughs> I'm at the point now, if you've not been through three recessions, that you should not be giving me financial <laughs> advice. I've been through at least three in my adult life 
And I know that I'll likely experience maybe four or five more, God willing. That's real. And so those are the kinds of things or those are the kind of people I would imagine if you are of the same age range and have the similar interests, you want to weigh advice from someone like that a little differently than someone who just read about a recession, but hasn't actually tried to get a job in one or made investments during a downtime that was significantly above the standard rules of thumb right. during a downturn, right? Like those are the kinds of things that I think weigh a little bit more for me at this stage in my life than even 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. In addition to being relative, risk is also cumulative. So this is my last tip. Risk is cumulative. So it me- what that mm-hmm. means is that repeated exposure to high risk activities increases the likelihood for negative results. And so as you learn to manage risk, going back to what you said about probability and possibility, you also learn to lower the possibility of negative outcomes. If you continue to expose yourself to high risk activities, it makes it very hard to lower the possibility of negative outcomes. So you want to focus on activities that have higher probabilities of success. And that comes with studying your track record, doing all the things that we said, talking to other people, making sure that you have something to compare those risk assessments too, and making sure that you're clear on the goal because you don't want to get desperate and just focus on the reward when there are all these other factors and variables that are going to impact the experience. All I'm hearing is a drug reference, which is if you continue to use drugs, your tolerance (laughs) for drug use goes up. You know what? And that leads to significantly worse outcomes. Well, different outcomes. Different outcomes. But yeah, that's true. You just want stronger drugs. Yes. So that you can try to, you're constantly chasing the high because you've numbed your ability to actually assess. There it is. There it is. That's why risk is both relative and cumulative. All right. Don't do risk, y'all. <laughs> don't do risk. Just don't be overconfident. Okay. Just like keep that confidence in check. You can be confident, but that overconfidence is where you want to pull back and listen to this episode again when you start feeling froggy. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast. If you like what you heard, you can let us know by leaving us a five-star rating and review, or you can drop a comment below and keep the conversation going. We will see y'all next week. Okay. Okay. Upgrades. (laughs) If you like videos like this and want to see more, make sure you click subscribe and turn on notifications. 